Matthew chapter 5, we move into a new section of these six antithesis that Jesus uses and to show how our righteousness must be greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, and also giving us the true intent and the spiritual internal conduct, the true meaning of God's law. I almost don't want to preach this section. It's a hard section because I stand condemned. I'm going to tell you that right now. I stand condemned. I've broken the seventh commandment based on what Jesus teaches here. So let's read the section, verses 27 through 32, and then see if we can't get into this. You have heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And it's been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, except for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. The whole section, verses 27 through 32, are about the seventh commandment. Let me read something to you from John MacArthur. It's the extended quote. Jesus again sets forth the impossible standards of his kingdom righteousness. All people are murderers and adulterers. Many do not realize that they are because of the subtlety of sin and its blinding effect on the mind. Jesus does not suggest that the scribes and Pharisees or anyone else could deliver themselves from the propensity to sin. As always, the impossibility that he sets forth has a twofold purpose. To make men and women despair of their own righteousness and to seek his. The Lord's perfect remedy for a wicked heart is a new heart. And his answer for our helplessness is his sufficiency. I like that. His answer for our helplessness is his sufficiency. Let me start out by introducing this section by talking about the perversion in our society. The perversion in our society. Now, Jesus starts out and he says, you have heard. I'm going to review a little bit of material here because as we move into each of these sections, we need to keep this foremost in our mind. Jesus was not assuming that everything that the common people heard was actually in the Old Testament. The scribes and the Pharisees regarded their oral tradition as equal in authority to the Old Testament. And what they taught from the Old Testament may not have been what God intended. And so he uses this phrase, you have heard that it was said by them of old. That phrase refers to this 
rabbinical teaching, the traditional teaching and the interpretations by the rabbis of old, past generations, the ancients as they were called, those who had orally interpreted the law, wrote those interpretations down, and then passed them down from generation to generation. Jesus is going to address a traditional interpretation of an Old Testament command, in this case, the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And so what Jesus is going to do is going to correct the false teaching of the Jewish written and oral tradition that had accumulated over that past several hundred years and had distorted the true nature of God's word, or in this case, the seventh commandment. Now, there were times that the scribes and the Pharisees had exalted aspects of the law that actually pushed the Ten Commandments into the background. Also, remember I said to you before that the common people, since the time of the exile and their return to their land, did not have the scripture in their own language, which would have been at that time Aramaic. They could not read or speak Hebrew any longer. That was left to the teachers. They did not possess copies of the Old Testament. They were bulky. They were expensive. And so due to the respect of their religious leaders, they just accepted whatever those religious leaders taught them. Most of Jesus' hearers depended on what they heard because they could not read. And so they would hear the teaching in the synagogues. They would hear the interpretations of the Old Testament law that had been passed on from generation to generation. And so Jesus starts each of these sections not with what the Old Testament said, but what the rabbis said that the Old Testament said. And in many cases, a false interpretation. So Jesus is going to correct their understanding of the Old Testament. Now, two things seem to be what Jesus is concerned with here. Correcting the erroneous traditions, which would have been the false interpretations of the scribes and the Pharisees, those men who always quoted the fathers. And the second thing was going to show the true nature and authority of the law. And folks, this is where I'd just like to step away from this passage of Scripture and not have to preach it at all. This is a hard one. So what about our society, the perversion in our society? Our society in general, let's talk about that. What Jesus is going to teach here is a standard, a righteousness that is opposed to what is widely accepted by society in general, and sadly by some Christians as well. We have moved very far from Jesus teaching uh, the true intent of the seventh commandment. Never in the history of Western civilization has faithfulness to the marriage vows been so threatened and discarded as we see today. Today we see unbridled passion 
and indulgence of all forms of sexual perversion. Sexual passions and expressions are encouraged and even praised. Sexual lust, passion is propagated, promoted, and exploited. Can I say this, that it's become the American pastime and the theme of our societies, of our society's entertainment. Our, our society is preoccupied with sex and may rightly be characterized by the phrase sexual hedonism. Sexual misconduct is viewed as the normal fulfilling of fleshly desires. And so to many today, it's just a biological function with no moral significance whatsoever. So physical relations to these people is just a biological act, no different than eating or drinking or sleeping. Now, folks, this is not new. That was also through the philosophy in Paul's day among the Corinthian believers. Take a look in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll start in verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. And we're going to go down, go down all the way to verse 20. Verse 13, foods for the body and the body for foods. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he who is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Verse 18. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is outside the body, and he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. In these beautiful verses, 19 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom ye have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, verse 13, the beginning part of the verse, represents a slogan of that time. But Paul will not allow them to apply that slogan to illicit sexual relationships. Their argument seems to go like this. Since everything is permitted, and since food is for the body, and the body is for food, and since all bodily appetites are pretty much alike, that means that sex is for the body, and the body is for sex. That was their argument. And so they engage in all forms of sexual hedonism. What is hedonism? Hedonism is the philosophy that makes pleasure the chief goal in life. Paul was fighting that even in the church, the church at Corinth. See, there's a new morality today. That new morality is what is adding to the ethical climate of our day, to our society in general, and it's based on these thoughts. 
I'm not saying this is right. I'm saying this is what this new morality is based upon. The proper action in any given set of circumstances is determined by the situation itself. That's called situational ethics. And not by any predetermined norm of ethics, including biblical ethics. That's wrong. The other philosophy adding to this new morality is that the only absolute demand in Christianity is love. That's all that matters. And combined, these would teach that anything is all right to do as long, it does, as long as it does not hurt the other person. And whether it hurts someone or not is to be determined or derived from the situation itself. So adultery, premarital sex is okay with this philosophy because it does not hurt the other person. And the other person's best interest is being served. Food for the body and the body for foods. So we have become a society that caters to all sorts of and all manner of sexual lusts and desires. Advertisements sell by exciting or stimulating the passions and desires within us. Sometimes I wonder, why did they put the picture of that beautiful girl on that for that product? That doesn't make any sense. They glamorize their products and programs using attraction and the exciting of the passions and the desires. And of course, we have our media. The media presents it all as what? Normal. Normal. Movies, sitcoms, soap operas, the media glamorizes the pursuit of sexual pleasure. Books, magazines, seminars, tapes, other media, including the Internet. And, folks, we have the most dangerous thing that, that men can hold in their hand today, and that's a smartphone. No accountability. And you can access anywhere in the world Internet sites pornography songs consumed with and focusing on relationships between men and women satisfying sex and physical desire and immorality infidelity and so on we can go on sex crimes at the highest levels ever <clears throat> a society we live in a society today that ignores God's commands. Sexual relations between a man and a woman were designed by God to be a privilege and a blessing for those who are married. Physical relations were created by God to be enjoyed in the bounds of marriage. fact, the Old Testament makes it very, very clear that God thought of adultery as a very heinous crime and despicable. It was punished by death. Both the adulterer and the adulteress were to be stoned to death. And you know what? The New Testament also commands against these kinds of sexual sins. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not perceive be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, and a list of some other things, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, 19-21, adultery and fornication are works of the flesh, and they are condemned. Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Ephesians 5, 3 through 4, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. Last book of the Bible, Revelation 21, 8, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, and the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Very simple statement here. Sexual relations outside of marriage are, for, are forbidden by God himself. But yet we live in a society that minimizes and despises marriage. And Satan is doing everything he can to destroy that creation institute of marriage. People today scorn, laugh at, and ridicule marriage, fidelity, and moral purity. And Jesus handles this in such a way that like the first section, if any of us were there, our, our mouths would have dropped to the ground. We, we, would, we wouldn't have believed what Jesus was saying here. We're talking about the sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, or the seventh commandment. The sixth commandment dealt with the sanctity of life, thou shalt not kill. The seventh commandment deals with the sanctity of marriage. And when you understand the seventh commandment in the light of the tenth commandment, which says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, it should have been clear that lust was involved as well, but course the scribes and the Pharisees keying in on the external only as long as you didn't commit the actual act of adultery you were okay and as I said the penalty for adultery was death Deuteronomy 22 22 if a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband then both of them shall die the man that lay with the woman and the woman so shall you put the evil put away the evil from Israel. So what was their definition of adultery? Of course, as it was for murder, thou shalt not kill, the actual physical act of sexual relations with someone other than your wife. That was their definition. Extramarital sexual relations between a man and another's wife actually would be the better way to say it because in that day and age men had concubines and that was not considered adultery a woman had to remain pure and chaste but a man could have concubines didn't seem fair did it ladies or if a man 
had sexual relations with a single woman, it was not considered adultery either. Today, we define adultery as sexual relations with anyone other than your marriage partner. So in that day, a man would not be guilty of adultery if the woman was not married. Committing adultery with another man's wife, get this, violated the rights of the husband. had nothing to do with his own wife. It violated the rights of the husband whose wife he had sexual relations with. They saw adultery in terms of theft rather than purity. In other words, you were stealing another man's wife. A woman was expected to be chaste before marriage and remain faithful after marriage. But a man, he could have concubines. I could go on. So they had taken the letter of the law and reduced it to this one instance in which they could then, like poor, thou shalt not kill, check it off the list, and they were innocent. In fact, the actual command, the seventh commandment, did not specify just the men. Both men and women were to remain faithful. Jesus is referring to their understanding of adultery, which falls very short of God's intended meaning. They thought as long as a married man did not have any physical relations with someone else outside of his own marriage bound, he was obedient to this command. And so we get to verse 28, but I say unto you. Again, Jesus is not changing, not expanding the law. He's showing that keeping the law is more than just the external physical act. He's showing that it's, it's just not the letter of the law. The law went further than what they had heard, further than what they had understood. The law had a spiritual content, an inter internal content to it. And so this statement that Jesus said emphatically against what they had heard, but I say to you, that I is emphatic. Jesus is contrasting what he is about to say with the traditional interpretations. And he sets himself up as the, as the authority, and he has a right to set himself up as the authority because he's the God who gave the law in the first place. He's not setting himself up over against the law as though Moses taught one thing and now he's going to teach something else. He does, however, set himself over against the external inter interpretations of the law by the scribes and the Pharisees, by the rabbis of that day, and their oral tradition passed on from generation to generation. It was not the law that was the problem. It was not the law that was in error. It was their explanation of it. So he's showing that what he is teaching does not contradict the law at all or the Old Testament. He's in complete agreement with every word or truth. He's not setting up a new law. He's showing that the teaching of the oral tradition passed on from generation to generation does not agree with the Old Testament law, the true nature, the spiritual nature of the law. And in so doing, he's showing that the righteousness that God gives is a righteousness that's of the heart. 
hence he fulfills the law, his law, inside a person, in his heart. You see, folks, our problem is not with the external acts. Our problem is our heart. So Jesus is showing us that he, as well as the law, was more concerned with the origin of sin that leads to the actions of sin. It's not just the external action that is prohibited. It's the internal, in this case, lust that is sin. By doing this, Jesus shows how the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, which was based upon the oral traditions passed on from generation to generation, fell short of the righteousness that's required for entrance into the kingdom of God. So there is a vast difference between God's requirements and the lower standard that we often set for ourselves and that we think is sufficient. And in my notes, I wrote this question. Sometimes I surprise myself with the things that I write. But I ask this question. When did it become acceptable for a sinner to set his own standard? When did it become acceptable for a sinner to set his own standard? And that's what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. And so in this statement, but I say unto you, Jesus is going to shatter our view of ourselves, do away with our illusion of being able to check things off of a list, doing away with any illusion of our own righteousness and obedience, any illusion uh, to our interpretation of God's law, which obscures the meaning that God intended. Jesus is going to reveal that even though the outside of the cup and the platter are clean, the inside is filthy dirty. So if we hold to an external righteousness, our view of ourselves will always be higher and more complementary. That's why, folks, I, I don't like this section. I hate this section. This is terrible. Because I stand condemned. And may I say that, every, ladies, you know, as we go on, you could probably shut me off because most of this is going to be aimed at the men. Don't do that, of course, but this one is hard. Which one of us can say we're not guilty of either murder or adultery under Christ's definition here? Anger and sexual lust are very powerful influences in our society. And they don't, we don't control them. They control us. Is that not true, men? Every one of you better be shaking your heads. Yes, in the affirmative. They control us. Every one of us have experienced these. And while our society moves away from this commandment in one direction, Jesus wants us to move in the other direction, the train tracks. So Jesus, after saying this, does not leave us with just an external and formal adherence to this commandment. He's showing the purity to which the law requires. 
So he continues to remove the mask of the external self-righteousness so highly desired among the Jews and even among us today. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Looking with the intent of lusting is adultery. Now, we're not talking about being safe as long as there's not a second look or glance. It is not what we do with our physical eyes so much, men. This looking here is a continual process of looking, gazing, staring, in order to lust. We're not talking about an involuntary glance, not an unexpected or, un, or, or an unavoidable situation. Not when a man sees a woman dressed immodestly as she walks by or as he walks by. If the sin is resisted and the look is turned away somewhere else, there's no sin or guilt here. And folks, it's awful hard in our society to walk around nowadays with blinders on. We are talking about an intentional and repeated looking, a continuing to look in order to satisfy the lust or to see more. It is looking until the passions are excited and the lust has conceived and the sexual thoughts are beginning. If you would, write down 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 14 and read that passage, men. We're talking about people whose eyes are full of adultery. They cannot look at a woman without evaluating or contemplating whether or not she would be a good sexual partner. And the idea of their eyes full of adultery shows how completely lust has filled their minds. They cannot cease, Peter said. There's this enslaving power of that lustful look. This is not in my notes, men, but we need to be careful because this kind of lust is enslaving. Once we are ensnared by it, it will draw us deeper and deeper into sin. It is an enslaving lust. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman... Any woman, married or single, it doesn't matter here. And this is where the Jews' jaws would have dropped. Jesus didn't specify adultery as being only looking at a married woman. Any woman. Now, may I say that Jesus says, mostly gears verse 28 towards the men. But the opposite of that is also true. It is possible that a woman can look at a man and lust after him. So it would apply equally to women lusting as well. However, men, understand this. Ladies, understand this. Lusting for a woman is not as natural as it is for a man. 
it, they, but they do lust, but is more a taught and learned behavior because of the media. But for a man, you don't have to teach a man to lust. But it does occur, the other side of this as well. Genesis 39.7 tells us that it can happen for a woman. Talking about Potiphar's wife, and it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. So it is possible. Let me just take a quick side here and talk about woman's dress. This is where you can turn me back on, ladies. A.W. Pink said this, If lustful looking is so grievous a sin, then those who dress and expose themselves with the desire to be looked at and lusted after are not less but perhaps more guilty. In this matter, it is not only too often the case that men sin, but women tempt them to do so. How great then must be the guilt of the great majority of modern misses who deliberately seek to arouse the sexual passions of young men. And how much greater still is the guilt of most of their mothers for allowing them to become lascivious temptresses. End quote, A.W. Pink. It is a sin of the heart of women to dress in such a way as to desire men to linger in their looks at them or to dress in such a way as to draw attention to their body so that men will desire them, to dress so men will want them. That is sin. However, having said that, a woman can dress in the most modest fashion and some men will still lust. I heard an evangelist say one time, you can dress every woman in a five-foot styrofoam ball and some men will still lust. Never forgot that. You know what? He's right. And so to the ladies, understand that men will lust, but don't give them occasion to lust after you. And here it is, I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her. Here is the crux of the matter here. Here's the sin. Lusting equals adultery. Lusting equals adultery. The goal of the action of looking is to lust. And if that happens... It says you've already committed adultery with, your, with her in your heart. So looking with the purpose of lusting, looking that ends in an impure imagination breaks the seventh commandment. So the man who looks so he can satisfy his evil desires is what is being talked about here. looking in such a way that he can impress that image on his mind so he can fantasize later. Or, as some have talked about, undressing the woman in your mind. I have a stop on my route in Chicago that I can't go into the, onto the dock 
because there's girly calendars in there. Now, I've never told the guy who unloads my truck why I don't go in there, but he comes out to my truck. I don't have to go in there. So I can't go in there. I just can't do it. We're talking in verse 27 about a man that goes to an X-rated movie. About a man who gets a movie because he knows there will be images in that movie he can look at and lust after. Who purposely watches certain shows because of its content. The man that intentionally goes to certain internet sites. The man who goes to the beach. You know why. This is the man who does anything with the expectation and desire of having those lusts flamed and passions sinfully excited. The point of verse 27, or 28, I mean, is adulterous thoughts make one personally guilty of breaking God's law. The secret intentions of the heart, though never carried out physically, they're only there mentally, men make us an adulterer. And I stand guilty. As in the first section about thou shalt not kill, we're all guilty of this. And you know what this shows? This shows the human impossibility of obeying the law in order to get into the kingdom of heaven. Understanding what Jesus said in verse 28, man or woman, doesn't matter, shows the absolute impossibility of keeping God's law. It is absurd to think that anyone can meet this demand of the law and why we need God's mercy. It shows again why we are all guilty and we need the righteousness of Christ to be given to us. So remember that the purpose of the law, among other things, was to show the exceeding sinfulness of sin, to show sin's true nature and to show where it comes from, where it originates in the heart of man. And so here's a man, verse 28, or a woman, has this lustful desire. The woman becomes the object of his lust. He wants her. She becomes the object of his lust in order to desire to have her physically. This word lust has a possessive nature to it, a possessive aspect to it with sensual overtones. The idea is to possess, to dominate, to use for one's own purpose or pleasure. That deep-seated lust consumes and devours us. It's a lust that in the imagination possesses and mentally contemplates, mentally commits adultery.
You've heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Not an easy section. Not an easy section at all. And it says that he's committed adultery with her already in his heart. What is adultery? Adultery is the breaking of those vows you made on your marriage day, the covenant that you made with your husband or your, the man or woman that you were going to marry. And you made that covenant not before people. Yes, that happened, but you made that covenant before who? Before God. And here, the word adultery is talking about sexual sin in general. Jesus is implying sexual purity for everyone. Notice those words. But I say unto you that whosoever, that means anyone, everyone, looketh on a woman, it's used in a general sense, these are comprehensive terms. These words can apply to the unmarried as well. This would mean that the one who attempts to arouse unfaithfulness in another as well, as we talked about the woman's dress, an unmarried person who tempts a married person to be unfaithful. Then you should underline that word already. He's already committed adultery with her in his heart. How? Just by that lustful looking. He's already done it in his heart. Not so much the look and the lust that has caused the sin. It is the sin in the heart that has caused the look and the lust. The look and the lust is the expression of the sin that's already in the heart. The sin's already taken place. The individual is already personally guilty. That lustful and desirous look has shown that adultery has already taken place in his heart. Sin originates in the heart. God knows and judges the heart. It is from the heart that all these sins in actual take place, Matthew 15, 18 and 19. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. They defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications. The heart is that central focus of the individual's inner life, the center of one's being or person, the center of one's desires and actions, the center of one's, uh, of a person's life, his emotions, his thoughts, his will. Lusting to have another woman that is not yours shows that one's very person has been incriminated. Guilty at the very core of his being, at the very inner of his being. We're talking about personal guilt here, inner personal guilt. And so, verse 28 can be talking about people who would never actually commit the physical act of adultery or even dream of it, but they may enjoy sinning in their mind, in their heart, in their imagination. At this point, we throw our hands up. We would object and say that's impossible. It's impossible to keep the seventh commandment. And so Jesus, in the next Verses is going to give us the remedy, the cure to how to prevent this. 
May we not be like people who deny that the problem is in the heart. May we understand that our heart is the problem. And all men, we need God's help for this. Make a covenant with your eyes. Ask the Lord to keep you. Keep your heart pure. Keep your mind pure. Find accountability. There is a program out there for your smartphone and your computers. It's called Covenant Eyes. Every internet site that you would go to is recorded and sent to two people of your choice to keep you accountable. So if this is that kind of problem for you, I recommend that. I recommend meditating on this and realizing how despicable it is in God's eyes for us to break the seventh commandment. And the way we do that is by looking on a woman and lusting after her. It's not easy. I used to have to make deliveries in downtown Chicago. And I almost had to drive with blinders on, especially during the summer months. The way some of those ladies, not ladies, the way some of those women and girls downtown dressed. It was very difficult to drive, keep my mind pure. Right, Constantine? He knows what I'm talking about. He's driven in Chicago. Men, if this is a problem for you, it's time to get some accountability. It's time to talk to your wife about it. It's time to get covenant eyes. It's time to avoid going to certain places so that those lustful looks don't occur. And ladies, I'm not saying you need to, dry, to dress in five-foot styrofoam balls. But do give some thought to how you dress. Not does it look good on me, not does, you know, all that, but does it draw attention to my body in a way that other men will lust? Be careful how you dress. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the admonition of it. And, oh, God, we need your help in this area, especially in the society in which we live. We need your grace. We need your strength. We need the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and to help us to walk in this day and age. We pray in Jesus' name.